is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. By the power of Grayskull. When he messes, I have the power, it's saying to the kids, you don't have to do what you're told anymore. You can be your own person. I got my first master's toys on my fourth birthday. It was just love at first sight. And suddenly, He-Man became, you know, this billion-dollar empire. All these male action figures, they're all so wimpy. Why don't we do a massive figure? And he called this one Tank Head. And he called this one Bullet Head. And he called this one He-Man. He-Man, He-Man. You're He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe. When we first heard the name, it was so macho and so male chauvinistic. So now you can never, never, never work. And then my dad's like, wait a minute. This could be a great show. We had like two weeks to do it. I mean, we were just flying. Everyone thought, this is ridiculous. It's never going to be a hit. When they announced they were doing the show, Action for Children's Television was up in arms just because of the title. Editors wrote, please do not portray He-Man uprooting a tree. Small children will be moved to emulate. <laughs> now it's a big deal to play a toy or play a you know, superhero. But in those days, it was potentially damaging to your career. It's one of my favorite roles remains so and always will be. It grew so quickly, and we made so many figures and accessories and toys. Through the 86, 87 period, it was bigger than Barbie. For a little boy, when you find this character in this world where imagination is, is beyond dream, it's just amazing. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking to Randall Lobb, the co-director of The Power of Grayskull, the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Before we begin, I just wanted to say that the quality of the phone call, maybe not the best during the first little bit, then we eventually switched over to phone. Shame on you, Skype. And I also wanted to say that the Dark Crystal documentary to which Randall refers is now available on Netflix. That's the making of the new Dark Crystal series. Also, I wanted to say that the term IP coming from the internet world, I kept thinking internet protocol, it means intellectual property. So wrap your head around that as you enjoy this interview with Randall Lobb.
Randall Lobb, tell me about you and tell me how you got involved in doing, well, gosh, you do a little bit of everything, producing, writing, directing, acting, miscellaneous crew. How do you know about acting? How did that secret get out there? I think uh, you acted in the short Brothers-in-Law. I forgot about Brothers-in-Law. I did. You're right. Do you know about people who have to do all the things? Have you ever? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they're called what hyphenates. I'm going to go into some inordinate detail. There's and there's one detail that I used to be in the film industry making commercials. I'm from southwestern Ontario, a rural part of Ontario. Kids tend to get jobs young, and kids work right. You might go work on a farm. You might work for your cousin or your uncle. In my case, my dad sold tractors, and I was not a good employee over there. Uh, but my uncle was an auctioneer, and he just learned how to drive things and deliver things and pack things and load things. And you have a different way of looking at the world that a city, than a city kid would have, right? You have to learn to do a lot of stuff. You're resourceful. So when I got into the film industry out of film school, I already knew how to drive trucks, and I knew how to load stuff. And like I just had a general laborer skill certainly not a skilled laborer not good with any tools in specific but in general some group of kids were pas packing trucks i would immediately say here let me and i'd go in the truck and you know you can rise through the ranks quickly if people see a tends to sweep this guy stays late this guy's first year i was that guy and did well there until i fell off my bike hit my head got had two kinds of amnesia, retrograde, enterograde. And when you have that, you get, nowadays we know about post-concussion syndrome. Back then, I'm 100 years old. There's no such thing. You just got your bell rung and people expect you back to work. And of course, weakness, the sharks smell the blood in the water and they circle and it's hard. Production is hard work. So I couldn't do it and I didn't know why. And so I became, by fluke that I won't go into, I became a high school teacher. And I thought I can write and teach and in you know my so-called spare time, I can get back into the film industry and maybe I'll teach for a few years and get myself figured out. And, and by the way, why would a head injury make you a teacher? Because it's controlled. The bell rings and you go to the next class. You're familiar with the early September, the seasons change, you're back at school. You know, it's a very structured kind of lifestyle and you know it since the time you're five years old. So it's a very smart way to live if you had whatever I had. Long story made longer, I, as a teacher, started to understand that this group of kids I was teaching, so these would be sort of people born and um, maybe coming of age in, they're born in the 70s and early 80s, and they're coming of age in the 90s. And I think we all know about millennials and Gen Zs and all that now, but I was watching this generational shift and these kids weren't like me exactly. I was the age that immediately understood what the internet was going to do from a nascent perspective. We saw how that technology would mesh into the world and sort of had a, a, fr a front row seat to building it. So I saw how education was going to be encompassed by the internet and how the internet would be part of education. And then I immediately extrapolated that onto entertainment. So very early on was thinking about how this film industry that I was doing on the side, working in development for people 
and, you know, writing freelance stuff and features and all kinds of whatever you want to say, freelance writing and so on. It all started to go in a direction towards tech. So very early on, we were putting coursework online. We were looking at how hypertext could get used in, you know, in, in learning. And you would say, what does this have to do with making movies? This takes me to a place where I'm making or using technology to make um, educational material more palatable to a group of people that we now know as millennials and later Gen Z or Gen Z, if you're American. I started to presumably learn some ways of building handles for this age of person. And I started to see how the currency of that culture was changed. It, it became more pervasive. It became more developmental. So you would see something that was just sort of out there. Batman, Batman is out there in 89. Batman gets turned into something else. And you realize, Oh, you know, Batman can be this. And you know, this idea that subsumed Batman or any of these franchises, these big corporations were learning how to get people to come back to them again and again and again. And there was a time you remember, I'm sure, when superhero movies kind of didn't work and Marvel movies were particularly not hitting the mark. And at this time when this is happening, as a teacher, I'm seeing what I think would do a better job or what doesn't mean I'm right. <laughs> what I think this age group of people or what these younger people looking for. And I started to get further down that road. And eventually we started working in 2008-9 on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. And that's a whole story of its own, which you may or may not know or have heard. But that film became the testbed for all these threads like the use of technology, the democratization of filmmaking technology and tools, um, the social proof of putting your material online in a context where someone else's material was, only that other person's a professional musician or filmmaker. The idea being you put your website, Mike's website, and it's in the same space, the same parlor as you know Bill Gates's website. And all of a sudden, you are as good as Bill Gates in some presentational way. And the idea of having a place online in this space and having content to put into it and building handles for people to grasp that content, that was what we were seeing in Turtles. And that often took a long time to make. Six was released. And that process really refined those skills. I ended up working with Isaac Elliott Fisher, uh, a cinematographer, and he's a very DIY filmmaker and younger than me and younger than Mark Hussey, with whom I also worked, who was a post-production and a tech wizard. And so we realized, geez, the three of us have this wide range. If I'm writing, directing, producing, and kind of doing the strategy and thinking about online and what you might say if you were in a corporation, innovation management or or you know, forecasting where we should go with this or that and thinking about marketing and content and all of these sorts of kind of boring, semi-boring corporate things, but applying them to education and entertainment and intellectual properties and these big franchises. And then I meet Isaac and Isaac's this young guy who can build anything and sets and he's a painter. He's a talented artist, a production designer, 
he's got a camera. He puts his own skin in the game. He knows how to shoot. He can light. And we get working with him. And Mark Hussey, he has a lot of, you know, at the time, cutting edge computers for editing and teaching himself all these programs and all these workflows and building them from zero. We have this entire production line. Um, Mark Hussey's brother, Matthew Hussey. He is a singer. He's a keyboard player. He can play guitar and he can do soundtracks and compose and perform. And you just start looking around in this small town we're in and we think, you know, we can end to end these movies. But the big question that we would have had is, can we approach an IP? Can we sort of perform something with this IP that adds enough value that these big corporations will either let us in or <laughs> point out, kick us out, which would be a story of its own. You know how that works. Or would they reach out and say, just either to get it off the or to allow it in the room and take a look at it. We sold it and we finished it and we were able to do everything that we needed to do. That movie is called Turtle Power, the Definitive History of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The people who owned the Turtles at one point, Kevin uh, Eastman and Peter Laird and all of Mirage, that group, they were all happy with us and they really liked us and they shared their information with us. And we just learned this way of doing things immediately after that. And by the way, you'll find this interesting. We started Conan, but we started Conan because I was in the office of the lawyer for Turtles. I represented Peter Laird and the Turtle franchise for many years. And in his office was a bunch of Conan ephemera. And I mean, an inordinate amount of Conan material. And I'm just there. After we delivered Turtles and the parents happy and we did some PR stuff. We had with the con at San Diego Comic Con, and everything was happening. We felt really great, and we really wanted to platform into the next film. He called me and he said, "Randall, we're all done. I just wanted to know um, if you don't have to work with me, but what are you thinking of doing next?" And I said, "Conan the Barbarian." And he got dead quiet, and he said, "You're not going to believe this." And I said, "What?" And he said, "I represent Conan." I can get you through to Conan Properties, Paradox Entertainment, I believe is what they were called, and a man named Fred Malmberg. And Fred Malmberg, who lives in Los Angeles, and he's from Sweden originally, and he and his husband, Jay, own basically were managing the franchise at the time. And I thought, oh, here these two gay Swedish men are running the Conan franchise. This is amazing. This is an incredible story. I loved it. So reached out to Fred Malmberg. We became friends, and we started Isaac and myself and Mark Hussey, we started working on Conan and we got along down the road doing Conan. And you're going to say, Randall, you've been talking this whole time. I want to know about power of Grayskull. You haven't He-Man yet. Well, if you know about your history, you know that the turtles and He-Man were of a, of a type, right? He-Man comes out and really influences aspects of the turtles toy line and you can see that in the sizes and the shapes and the fanciful characters and the you know the bizarre mutations and all that there's a just kind of a an interlink there but there's more than that there was also a guy named mark taylor was involved in both franchises critical to he-man and then he became important in turtles and a few other people beside Isaac said to me you know we should do he-man next i said no way that's a complex franchise it's all split up it's different parts are at universal and different parts are are they with mattel and and who's doing a movie and just seemed like it was distributed weirdly and wasn't focused right nothing was coming so i said 
Now I don't want to do He-Man. We're going to stay with Conan. Well, we find a document in the Conan archives that linked He-Man and Conan. It was some kind of a lawsuit, some kind of activity between, in effect, Conan properties at the time and Mattel. And it was all about the John Milius movie. So there's one. Then we interview Bill Stout, William Stout, the artist, and he's talking about Conan. He worked on Conan. Well, I really did a lot of work on He-Man. And Isaac and I look at each other, and then William Stout shows us his He-Man stuff. Oh, my God. Amazing. I say, not two things aren't enough. We got to have another one. Well, we end up at Gary Goddard's office, and he did the Universal show, the Conan Live uh, show, whatever you want to call it, stunt spectacular sort of thing, to set the sort of uh, model for those types of shows. Well, he directed the He-Man movie. So Isaac turns to me, and he looks at me in Gary Goddard's office, and he puts his arms up, and he goes, okay, how many more do we need? I was skeptical. I thought, this is never going to work. Mattel is a very big company, and I thought they'll be very protective. And Whatever you want to say is negative. So, back and Conan was something we were developing and really thinking we were going to put out in 2015. I want you to think about that. It's 2019. We're still not out. So, we got a lot of stuff shot, a lot of stuff in the can. And during this period of uh, summer 2015, Bob McCallum had done Nintendo Quest. He knew about Turtle Power. And there were actually a few filmmakers who reached out to me or to Isaac or to Mark and just said, hey, we like Turtle Power. We're wondering how would you approach this or what would you do for that? And I'm not talking like it's not the Hollywood moment where Sony calls you up and says, get your son or whatever version of that. It's more like a filmmaker saying, hey, I saw that. I'm curious. You know, what did you do? How did you do it? How did you solve this problem or that problem? <laughs> Generally quite friendly. So chat it up. Well, Rob McCallum did a little bit of a trick on Isaac, sent him a message on Facebook. And he said, uh, I'm going to do a documentary on He-Man. And Isaac had panicked. I'm going to do Lord of the Rings. I'm going to you take whatever big franchise and you feel like you're the one who should do it. And probably some of that is ego. But more of it is your excitement, right? You're passionate about a franchise. So Isaac contacted me and said, you know, this guy, Rob McCallum, he lives near us, strangely enough, city nearby. And um, he wants to do He-Man. And should we, like, hurry up and do it or what? And I said, well, why don't we team up, see how we can deal with that? And so we, over a couple months period, we hit it off with Rob. We thought we had a workflow. By the way, if you make films, you know it's not easy to pull someone into a system that could be idiosyncratic or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we have our own workflow. And I do not envy Rob coming in, Robert, uh, if he prefers Robert coming into that workflow and then having to, you know, basically wear these clothes that we made. <laughs> and Robert, here's your suit, right? So uh, I can imagine it was. You know, he probably had, and if, uh, if he was on this call, he might disagree because he's a nice guy, but he might have had trepidations. And I had trepidations. He wanted to co direct and co write. And I'm, if anything is known about directors, they're probably control freaks, male, female, young, old, doesn't matter. So we figured out a way to work together. And we started that documentary, kind of set Conan aside because of other factors, which I'm happy to chat about, you know, if you want. Uh, if you can ever get a word in edgewise. And we thought about going to Kickstarter because that was Robert's kind of area of knowledge that once compared with us, 
I'll be honest, when we made Turn Power, it was, you know, mortgage your house, make a movie, see what happens, try and sell it. With Conan, it was, we take, if you have a little bit of money left over from Turtles, can we put that into another picture? Yeah, we did. Um, he, man, it wasn't going to work that way. We were going to run out of money immediately. And Rob had the idea of Kickstarter for his Nintendo Quest. Can we do a Kickstarter any kind of campaign using our skills to have a really nice opening video and, you know, put together some added value materials and, and just really all the things that we do make it so that it would work. And that's how we approached working on it before we kickstarted it. We had some pieces put together and when we kickstarted we had enough of it to jump into in full tilt. If you've seen it or you know anything about it, you know we got a lot of people. I'm sure you have questions about some of that. I have to stop here so you can say something that I know that you're there. He-Man, what did he mean for you and the rest of the uh, full pop uh, media guys to say this is going to be our thing? Robert McCallum, one of the reasons why it was good for us to work with him, He-Man was incredibly important to him. He was the perfect age. He was in a situation where he wanted and needed some role models. He wanted some comfort from that show. And I don't think I'm speaking out of turn about him. I mean, he had quite a start. He made a film called Missing Mom, which if people saw that, they know that it's quite a story. And so I think he really bonded with the characters in He-Man, and it was meaningful to him. For Isaac, it was something that he wanted, the toys, the beautiful Castle Grayskull playset was to him something really powerful and totemic. For Mark Hussey, my business partner and person who is in this room with me right now, I don't think it was particularly important to him either. He had younger siblings, so it was on his radar. For me, it's important that I'm on the outside. If you approach these IP deeply inside, the tendency is for it to color your choices. And if I don't find myself at a remove, a safe remove, I can't make the decisions I make in quite the same way. It's like you can imagine if your, your son or daughter hands you a piece of work from grade two or something, and it is beautiful to you. You love it because that's your child. And so you don't have quite the same perspective on it. So I really try to be objective about all of these IP. So for me, it's emergent. My enjoyment of the franchise, both in the Turtles and in He-Man, comes from the people that I meet. So when we start making the documentary, it is a voyage for me to discover these amazing people behind the scenes. And we really, I think I speak for Marcusi as well, and Isaac and Robert, we really come to like the people that we work with and we're talking about and talking to. And so that's how, for me, the franchise in each case is colored entirely by the world behind that character and behind all the different versions, you know, action figures and what have you. So you see what I mean? It's very different. People used to say to me, you know, who's your favorite character? And my favorite character, you know, might be Mark Taylor. My favorite character might be Dolph Lundgren or Franklin Jelly. You know what I mean? It's it's totally based on the way that I interact with the, the behind the scenes of it, which is 
probably the opposite of what a lot of your fans would think. You talked a little bit about some of the inroads that you made with He-Man inadvertently while you were doing your research for Conan, but I'm curious about how you went about the rest of it as far as who you managed to talk to, and especially when it comes to some of the, for lack of a better term, the super fans that you talk to, because they have super interesting stories, which I wouldn't necessarily think. You think about really hardcore super fans, and you think, okay, yeah, they're kind of blinded to everything else. But these guys actually have really interesting stories to tell. Well, part of it is who you choose. I'm not pointing at anyone or, or not pointing at anyone. But if you were to look at any fandom as a filmmaker coming in from the outside, you know, I'm choosing the ones that have the good stories, not necessarily in advance, but you know, it's possible there's someone on the cutting room floor, not for any fault of theirs or anything negative about them, but their story perhaps wasn't as touching or as, you know, interesting as someone else's. So you do have that effect of the editing process is waiting. You know, it seems like everybody we chose had a great story. The other side of it is that people remember things that happened to them in their childhood with a different color and they remember things that happen to them when they're in their, say, their 30s or their 40s or, or even in their 20s. Their 20s is kind of an interesting period, separate conversation. But the things that happen when we're children, they actually form our brains, right? Your brain isn't done. When you're a boy, uh, your brain is growing and developing until you're probably 27 or 8 or something, maybe more. You're forebrain. And so a lot of your emotions and a lot of your sense of yourself these things are literally created by the activity of perceiving something and then amalgamating it into your experience and your thoughts and your feelings. So, you know, in my case, if I watched the Spider-Man cartoon, that old crazy old cartoon from the 60s, the Ralph Bakshi uh, produced cartoon with the great jazz music, that music's very powerful for me. It's short circuits directly to my emotions. And I think the case can be made that the feeling of nostalgia we have comes right out of the the power and the primacy of these emotional memories. And so somebody who watched it at a certain time has a certain feeling and all of those feelings are, are awakened because, you know, your brain works by association. So all these things are clustered together. And I think people, they do get into the heart of their feelings or their ideas rather uh, about the franchise at the time they watched it. I think even, did not David Wise say that? A different documentary. The writer David Wise, you might have known David Wise from Transformers or Turtles, he made a line. He said, the perfect era or the perfect age for science fiction. And people were trying to say, was it the 50s, the 60s, the 70s? I think he said it was Theodore Sturgeon who said, the perfect age for science fiction is 13. I really like. That's a great. And then, by the way, I probably misquoted probably said the wrong author and probably said the wrong age that David Wise said, but you get what I'm saying. You mentioned before that you had had a head injury when you were growing up. And when was that? Well, actually I was 23. Everybody my age had head injuries in the sixties and seventies, but our parents back then were more laissez-faire. They let us do stuff and we got hurt when we got banged around. So I've had probably eight or nine good concussions and I'm, fine, trust me. But uh, this one in particular, when I was 23, it was a, it was bad enough that um, I had these kinds of amnesia. Yeah. So I lost about a year. I don't know. I don't know how long. 
I, I was just curious because you're talking about that whole idea of the brain, the brain growing and then what that might have affected your Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Maybe even your take on pop culture with that. Hey, man. 100% true. My take on pop culture comes 100% from being a desperate kid in a small town in rural Ontario, Canada, with no access to the things that I am interested in. And kids growing up now have no idea of the scarcity of enjoyment. So you think about yourself, again, you can tell me your age, or you can just tell me something you loved as a kid, and I'll know. But if I loved David Bowie in 1974, and I did, it was next to impossible to get any information about him. There's no internet. I can't go buy a magazine, cream magazine or whatever Rolling Stone magazine. I don't even know about those until somebody's older brother leaves one on the floor. You know what I mean? It was pure hunger. So I'm from an era when if you want something, you have to go and actively get it and you have to participate in it in a way that is really, really active. I'm looking, I'm going to stores seeking what I want and I'm going to people's houses and looking through their records and, Oh my God, you've got this. So if I figured out that Neil Adams did Batman at a certain time period to go back to our Batman structure, I don't think I knew who Neil Adams was until I was in my twenties. I just knew that name is good. That's a good Batman. I wish I could find more of those. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. I don't think I was even aware of how a comic book was made. So you see this way of going out into the IP and digging through it and approaching it with reverence and elevating it or, or recognizing that it is elevated by my need has given me, specifically me, a certain mindset. I'm very much a hunter, a seeker, a want to hold and look at and examine. And, you know, if you've ever had that experience of sitting down with your album or your CD and you read all the information on it, you figure out Mutt Lang produced this ACDC album. And you, you know, you start to make a composite of the world that is not the same as someone who's just listening to music, just watching the music for a lot of kids. My age, it was star Wars, right? Who's George Lucas? Who's Richard Edlund? Wait a minute. What is somebody made this? You know, that's a real switch being flipped. But I was always that kid. I was like that my whole life. Always wanting to know more and desperate to get as much as possible. More input, more in, which is handy for a doc filmmaker. When you approach He-Man, do you always know? I mean, there is a, at least until maybe a year ago when or two years ago, whenever the She-Ra cartoon uh, started to back up. And now we've got the announcement yesterday of Kevin Smith returning re, re, uh, with the animation of He-Man. But until then, we had a pretty clear beginning, middle and end of the He-Man story. But how do you approach I'm going to give this much focus to this era of it. Like the movie itself could have been an entire documentary. 
Yeah, and we cut a bunch of stuff, of course. So what you have to do is go by feel. The first thing is the best idea always wins. And you can't put your ego in the, in the argument or the discussion. So if I'm sitting down talking to the other guys and we say, you know, this, whatever this little thread is, this story thread, this is really interesting. So in He-Man, one of the really interesting threads for some other people was who invented He-Man? Can we see if Mark Taylor and Roger Sweet can have an argument or get to, you know, there's some loggerheads to play out there. That's valid for someone to do. That's their decision. My approach is a little more like, let's see what people say about how it was created. And you start to, as you listen to people, if you really listen to them, they'll tell you what the movie is about. They'll tell you what the story is. It's because they say the thing that is most important to them. And when you hear, if we interview 60 people and 60 people say these important things, and I start to line up all the commonalities, and in a way, my ego gets out of the way anyway, because there's the best ideas are the things that they said. So then the other filmmakers that, you know, they're sitting here with me, we go, okay, they're saying this, we should say that too. So there's best idea wins. Second part is you have to come up with something that allows itself to grow. So if you imagine having a checklist and interviewing someone, they're going to give you basically an answer to your question. But what if you say something to them that elicits an unintended response? Now you're having a conversation. And so by just talking to people, listening to them and letting them sort of decide what they're going to let this interview be or where it's going to go or what it becomes, uh, you get into a place where you're sort of following this, as we call it, an emergent story. So go back to your question. You start off and you get some pretty cool stories and that's interesting. Let's keep that. Uh, But that second thing we had there, that feels like the same thing, only different. So you pull that out. And you just keep doing that over and over again. And you see these connections. And some of us, you know, again, I'll say I've proven this over time. I'm able to hold basic thesis points in my head. And I know, okay, I'm going to go back to Turtles 1. We're talking about firsts. First comic, first cartoon, first movie. You know, you talk about firsts. With He-Man, you talk about how the group comes together, the group think, how the different contributors layer in elements. So if you were going to say, what's the narrative thread there that you stuck with? It's when people add interesting elements. So Mike Barbato says, well, snout spout, I'm an engineer. My job is to figure out how to get the water in, squirt the water out. That's interesting because here's this engineer layering his element on. And, you know, you watch the doc differently when you realize, oh, what these people are doing is saying it takes a village. So anytime somebody says, I did this and I did that, doesn't really fit the theme, you know, doesn't fit that idea. So you might discard that. The way I would suggest we do it, we have basic points, we have basic ideas, we have themes and theses, we have metaphors in our heads, you know, we have all these kind of markers that we want to hit. And then we just let it feel like it fits. And sometimes there's a special trick I'll do a big jump. Like you might point someone's criticism of of the film could say, uh, well, at the end, it kind of rushes. They go over, they gloss over a bunch of stuff quickly at the end. Yeah, we did. Because there's 
really no end in a way. We wanted to talk about the movie that was in development and we didn't get it. Yeah. We didn't get a chance to get there. Like you were looking for something and then you realize, Oh, it's not there. And then you realize this franchise never ended. And all of a sudden you realize that's what the movie kind of shows. So a lot of stuff happening and there's this pent up feeling. There's this sense of there's, there needs to be more. What's, what's next? What's happening? Where's he man? And we kind of put that in that, in the film, that feeling. And so some people don't like that and that's fair, but some people feel this excitement at the end, like, Oh my God, what's next. And, and by the way, if you came to me and said, Hey, would you make the second half? I'd say, yes. Like that's part of the feeling. You never feel like you're done. We could do this again. We could pick up where we left off. Yeah. How long does it take between when Robert McCallum kind of tricks you and when you actually show this for the first time at what was that power con? Yeah, I think it was two years. Let me just ask Mark. Mark, He-Man was two years, right? Summer, summer, summer 2015 to summer 2017, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. There you go. That's remarkable that you could fit all of those interviews and all of that into just a two-year period of time. If you saw how quickly we got together those interviews, it would blow your mind. There was, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a two-week period where Isaac counted up that we had done over 30. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I, it's not possible. Like, I don't know how we did it. I don't remember exactly how we did that. But you do it in, in, in bursts, right? It, it would be nice if I could work eight hours a day, and then that would be my job, and I'd make a movie. But it's more like exploding periods of time and then waiting for something to happen and exploding periods of time and then waiting for something to happen. You're not still teaching at this time, are you? I was for a big part of it. Um, I was teaching high school English and I was head of the department. Um, but I was, you know, you're teaching stuff that you really know well. I have the kind of memory I'm able to, you know, read something and kind of retain it. Obviously, I make these films. But... Uh, I taught up until August of 2015 and then pulled out. That interview with Frank Langella was probably one of the best things I've ever seen. Oh, man, you're so kind. But I have to say I loved it. And I think you can hear that. You can totally tell that I'm having a great time with him. Well, he's just so sincere in that he holds that performance of his in such high regard. It was so wonderful to hear because there's so many times where somebody's in something that isn't entirely, you know, considered a box office boom or whatever, and they just, you know, brush it under the carpet. But he is so into that. It was great. I'm going to have to say here, and again, I've said this before, but I'll make it make the point for you and your listeners it's Adam F. Goldberg that made that happen. Adam F. Goldberg, who made, makes the show, made the show The Goldbergs on ABC. That's about his life. He's a huge fan of He-Man. And he reached out to me during the Kickstarter and said, you know, I, I want to see this movie. If you would come out and talk to me about it, I'd like to be involved. And, you know, I didn't go to him and say, hey, can you cut me a check or anything like that? Like I imagine lots of people do. Because why wouldn't they? That's how it feels Hollywood works. But I went out and said, I'd love, you know, to have you involved. How would you like to be involved? He said, if you're in trouble and you need something, let me know, particularly people. So he got us Dolph Lundgren and Frank Langella, which would be, 
if anything, it's two of the best parts of the movie. Like you go, oh my God, there they are. And it's exciting. And it was exciting for us that he made that possible. And here's the crazy part. Frank Langella told us, Isaac and I, that he loves talking about it. He wanted to talk about it and he was relishing the chance. So think about that. He hadn't had many opportunities to discuss the film and he really wanted them. So when you get a chance to get him on camera and we are, by the way, at his place, he come to his place. I won't say where, but we went to where he lives and we sat down in his comfort zone and he just gave us the truth. And you could tell, even you said it yourself, you could tell he really wanted to talk about it. It was important to him and his kid. And it was great. The other thing that I was really compelled by during the documentary was um, all of the discussion of gender roles. And I know that that's very important, of course, to kids that are growing up. But just to hear the adults talking about how they wanted to make sure that genders were being represented and just the way that uh, She-Ra was kind of being put under the carpet. Now you're talking about these things, themes that are important not just to me personally, but to us as a group here. I don't know if you have a mother or ever did, but I did. And almost everybody I know has or had a mother. And I don't know if you ever had a sister or a girlfriend or a wife or a daughter. Whether you're gay or straight, you interact with women on an ongoing equal basis. But if you do something in culture, especially in what people call nerd culture or geek culture, you often don't see a lot of women and you often don't see good representation. And if you are on Twitter right now, you see a lot of them. And so it was important to us to talk about that. You know, when you talk to Justine Danzer and she talks about some of the things that were difficult for her to be a toy designer and to be taken seriously and to be accepted as a person and not as a girl doing a boy's job and whatever they would have said at that time period, it becomes obvious that you have to talk about it. I would have liked to have gone further. At one point at Mattel, there was a female CEO and she was very powerful there. And obviously, you know, it would have been nice to talk to Noel Richardson, who's show running the Shira show on Netflix. I think that's her name. Correct me if I'm wrong. Sorry. Um, no, Noel Stevens. I'm sorry. I've, I've dropped her name, but those opportunities to talk to women and to talk about their perspective on pop culture is critical. A lot of young girls growing up, you know, had some pretty unpleasant role models to look at. As a guy with a daughter, it comes incumbent upon me to do what I can to stop that. If I can play a part in getting positive messaging out there, you know, responsibility as a dad, as a teacher, as a co-equal person in a world full of people who are both men and women and whatever in between works. So what is the plan to have this documentary roll out now for the public? It's a complex world we live in now. You know, you sell some rights to Netflix or, or licensing rights for a certain window of, of streaming there. And then there are other rights that you try and sell off elsewhere, or you get a sales agent to help you sell those rights off. Or, you know, there's, some of this you can see at Universal soon. They're putting something out and you'll probably see it. And it's going into uh, physical media in September through high octane pictures. And it's just building sort of ways of getting the movie out there that become tricky. And so it took a long time, obviously, 
and you don't get whole for a while on a movie like this. I mean, people, I know some of the Kickstarter fans thought, Hey man, you're done. Where's all the stuff. And then we had to compile everything. You know, there's a lot of work involved and some of that work is dictated by distribution deals. So you might be told, you know, Netflix has requirements that you behave in a certain way or publicize certain things or not other things. So that affects what you do or don't do at a certain time. And then, you know, the next rights windows after that are affected. So again, it's boring and it's business and it's not as fun as where's the movie. But by, by September, I think third, is it? You will be able to go and buy this, have your movie available other places. Nice. And we've wanted that all along because people who let you know and people who are happy off don't. The uh, physical DVD, are there many extras on there? I don't want to say where the extras will be, but there will be extras. You and you will have access to them in a number of places. We had to make a number of different extras in a number of different forms. Yes, is the answer. Like, I, I know this is important to fans. And it's important to me and to everybody here, to Robert, Isaac, and Mark. We want everybody to see everything that we can get in there. So if there's a way to put 10 pounds of content in a five-pound bag, we'll try everything we can to get it in there. Tell me about Riddle of Steel and how that's going for you. So this is a uh, one of the vagaries of being a filmmaker in modern culture. Um, we are very close to Fred Momberg and... He's running the franchise and he's doing things. And he is the whole Robert E. Howe uh, library, the estate and what, or not the estate, you know what I mean? The intellectual property attached to REH. And he's trying everything possible to get Conan back out there and everything. And not just from a business perspective. Like he doesn't just say, Hey, I bought this IP. I want to make money. He's a true believer. He loves it. And he has been in it for a long time. So, Something was set up. I'm not saying anything secret here. This is all public information. Something was set up at Universal, and it looked like there was going to be a movie, and it looked like Arnold was going to be in it. And we thought we would be putting our Conan documentary sort of in the ecosystem around that movie. And that movie didn't continue on. It fell apart in whatever way. And so there was something somewhere that looked like it was to be at a particular company and perhaps be a television program to some degree, a series. And that didn't work out as expected for a number of reasons. And so they're back at square one trying to setting up something else in what we hope to be a manner that allows us to get that documentary put together. We're 90% done, by the way. Like I could sit down and watch a, I think it's a three hour cut of that movie right now. Yeah. I had a five hour that I was cutting away at with Isaac. And I think we got it down to three. And we just have a few more things we'd like to get. And one of those things is not a secret. We can't put this out until we get Arnold. We just can't. For one-third of Conan fans, it's about Arnold. One-third of the Conan fans are Marvel Comics people. And by the way, Marvel and Dark Horse, I should say. But Marvel's new Conan stuff, I don't know if you're reading that. It's great. I love what Jason Aarons is doing, Jerry Duggan. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. And, and I loved seeing that happen. I like the Conan games. You know, there are some Conan games out right now that are, I think, are killing us. They're really interesting. I like it being back. But we really need to come out with something else, a movie or a series. Or else, you know, you, you just can't go to Arnold's house and, sh and shoot with them. There has to be a, 
there has to be something there or, you know, his times, he's still Arnold's right. And, and he needs to know like, Oh, there's a world around this now. I get it. And then I think he'll agree. By the way, I'm speculating. Remember I said, Franklin Jella said he wanted to talk about it and it was hard to get him up until we got him. And then he said, man, I'm, I wish you'd called me sooner. Like that happens a lot. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of that that goes on where people either act like they want to do it or act like they don't, or you, know, you just don't know how the business works. So, Yeah, and there's a lot of layers out there, too. That's right. And once we get him, we're, we're basically done. On, honestly, there are three or four things that, that would be nice to get. But having him would make this... Like, we interviewed John Milius. Think about that. If you interview John Milius, you need to have Arnold because that's... Really, that's two guys that we associate really strongly with that film. And the film's very important. Did you shoot him before he had the stroke? We shot with him in the fourth or fifth year after his recovery. And, and it, was, it was amazing. We spent the day with him. And he's, he's getting out into the world more often now. But it was a very difficult thing for him to come out of the stroke. And, you know, I don't want to say too much. It's not my place to come in on someone else's help. But there's a guy who really has had it all climb. And, and it is still that way, having a stroke. I mean, you are your brain. And with the brain that that man had, you know, that's a lot of stuff that got impacted, a lot of, a lot of big guy to deal with. And so he's had a really tough go. And I don't, um, I don't know that many people would have the strength to do what he's done, but He's getting back every day. We haven't seen him in a while, but we hear that he's going out and doing conventions and stuff the odd time now, which is amazing. Randall, when Riddle of Steel comes out, I'm definitely going to want to talk to you about that. So I'm I'm putting that on your calendar for whenever that is. <laughs> oh, man, I wish. I know you've got a lot of irons in the fire. You know, you're doing not only documentary work, but then also working on narratives. You've got screenplays. You've got, and then uh, I'm curious, what else you have going on? Well, there's something that I can mention, but I can't talk about it. Um, August 30th, Netflix's Dark Crystal series comes out. Dark, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, and I am pretty sure there's a documentary going behind the scenes on the dark crystal that will blow people's minds. If you like to go in places where nobody gets to go and you like to see things that nobody sees this documentary about this stunning achievement will be very appealing. And I feel very proud of that documentary almost as if I was involved. You know what I'm saying right now? You understand me? Yeah. I think I'm picking up what you're laying down. Sometimes you really feel, and this documentary, I've seen it many times. I really like it. But more to the point, that series is a stunning achievement. It is visually insane. I don't know if anybody is ready to watch this thing. It is incredible. You need to have more than popcorn. Let's put it that way. You need a lot of snacks, a lot of drinks. It's going to be a multi-hour trip through a fantasy world like very few people have imagined. Randall, where's the best place to keep up with you and your work? People who want to know what I'm doing should check out Definitive Film with no S. That's Definitive Film on Facebook or Twitter. Or you can look for me uh, on Twitter or Instagram. I'm the lab coat guy. And um, I usually 
post stuff that makes you wonder what happened, like, well, I did what, you know, the odd time I make a frustrated comment, but normally it would be, look who we met, look who we can't talk about, look what we, and, I, and I'll get specific. Let's say we were shooting a documentary about something and we were traveling and we couldn't show what I'm doing. I might picture my shoe and the floor in a place we're not allowed to shoot. And I would put that up and people would say, I don't understand what he's doing here. <laughs> and then later can tell the story. We kind of flood with the pictures. So that, that would be after August 30th, it would be good to find us on Twitter, Facebook, and you can go to our website, definitivefilm.com. Randall Lobb, thank you so much for your time today. Listen, thank you for being patient. There's a lot of monologue here. People who listen to the cut-down version that's probably 10 minutes long, they'll be very surprised by how much is on the floor. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.